I? What am I? roared the president, and he rose slowly to an incredible height, like some enormous wave about to arch above them and break. You want to know what I am, do you? Bull, you are a man of science. Grub in the roots of those trees and find out the truth about them. Syme, you are a poet. Stare at those morning clouds and tell me or anyone the truth about morning clouds. But I tell you this, that you will have found out the truth of the last tree and the topmost cloud before the truth about me. You will understand the sea, and I shall be still a riddle. You shall know what the stars are and not know what I am. Since the beginning of the world, all men have hunted me like a wolf, kings and sages and poets and lawgivers, all the churches and all the philosophies. But I have never been caught yet, and the skies will fall in the time I turn to bay. I have given them a good run for their money, and I will now. As they were looking round wildly for any trace of their wild quarry, a keeper in uniform came running along the path with a man in plain clothes. "'Has it come this way?' gasped the keeper. "'Has what?' asked Syme. "'The elephant!' cried the keeper. "'An elephant has gone mad and run away!' "'He has run away with an old gentleman,' said the other stranger breathlessly. "'A poor old gentleman with white hair!' "'What sort of old gentleman?' asked Syme with great curiosity." A, "'A very large and fat old gentleman in light grey clothes,' said the keeper eagerly. "'Well,' said Syme, "'if he's that particular kind of old gentleman, "'if you're quite sure that he's a large and fat old gentleman in grey clothes, "'you may take my word for it that the elephant has not run away with him. "'He has run away with the elephant. "'The elephant is not made by God that could run away with him "'if he did not consent to the elopement. "'And by thunder, there he is!' There was no doubt about it this time. Clean across the space of grass, about 200 yards away, with a crowd screaming and scampering vainly at his heels, went a huge gray elephant at an awful stride, with his trunk thrown out as rigid as a ship's bowsprit, and trumpeting like the trumpet of doom. On the back of the bellowing and plunging animal sat President Sunday, with all the placidity of a sultan, but goading the animal to a furious speed with some sharp object in his hand. "'Stop him!' screamed the populace. "'He'll be out of the gate!' "'Stop a landslide,' said the keeper. "'He is out of the gate!' And right out of the gate comes the girth and mirth, the gladness and madness of the genius of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. As rotund and weighty and mysterious as the planet Jupiter itself, Chesterton and his cosmic imagination have given us a novel as big as the universe itself, one that has not gone out of print since it first appeared in 1908. Part earthquake, part symphony, 
The Man Who Was Thursday continues to captivate the minds and the imaginations of generations of readers, not unlike the heavens themselves. The body of his writing is almost too large for any one person to wrap their head around. His own body was equally as weighty in physical appearance. He was as jovial as Father Christmas and as magnanimous as the Milky Way. Chesterton has ascended the heights of literary splendor and has left a plethora of gifts in the minds and the imaginations of countless writers, poets, statesmen, scientists, philosophers, journalists, Christians and non-Christians alike, including C.S. Lewis. On this episode of Good Heavens, I talk with C.S. Lewis scholar Dr. Michael Ward, who has some fascinating insights into what Chesterton might have been up to in relation to the overall atmosphere, the kappa element of the novel. The Man Who Was Thursday is part comedy in the Dantean sense, and a tragedy, a spy novel, and a mystery, a love story, and a prose poem that takes readers on a somewhat dizzying romp through London, which might also be something of a head-turning science fiction adventure novel through the solar system. Strange creatures, appearances, not always what they seem, it's hard to figure out just exactly which way is up. Spoiler alert, if you have not yet read the story, we are going to divulge certain details and plot twists in this two-part discussion. So if you're up for adventure, romance, cosmic mystery, intrigue, comedy, uncertainty, and seeing the glory of God in ways you have yet to consider, come along for this wild ride around the Jovian world of G.K. Chesterton, and the man who is Thursday. But bring a hat. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Ward. Michael Ward. Uh, it seems like... Uh, it's been a while. Uh, so nice to have you on the podcast. I am talking with Dr. Michael Ward, who is coming to me from London. It's tea time in London, isn't it? No, you're not in London. You are in, where are you? Oxford. You're in Oxford. Yes, sorry. Yes. My, my UK geography is, is, is goofy. <laughs> uh, Michael is coming to us from Oxford. It is uh, tea time in Oxford. Is it tea time in Oxford? Yes, I have my cup of tea on my desk as I speak to you. Excellent. I just wanted to make sure that uh, I wasn't totally interrupting that. If you have to take a sip of tea as we talk, that would be great. Um, so, Michael, it's so wonderful to have you again. It seems like uh, it's been almost every March since 2014 that we've talked somehow or we've yes. met. You were my yes. thesis advisor at uh, Houston Baptist University and uh, very encouraging in getting me to write. And uh, you were in our story, The Cosmos book, talking about Lewis and uh, so it's a delight to be able to talk to you again, sir. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Yeah, good to be with you. Yes. Um, today, we're not going to talk about Lewis. We're going to be talking about something else. We're going to be talking about G.K. Chesterton, which kind of in a way is Louisian, right? Uh, that there's 
Chesterton and a lot of what Lewis's and a lot of Lewis's imagination and writing. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Chesterton was very influential on Lewis and was quite helpful, actually, in Lewis becoming a Christian. Lewis read uh, Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, and found it very helpful. Fantastic. I mean, it, it is. I am not, I have to admit to my audience and to you that I am a, I'm limited in my knowledge of, of GK. I know there's a lot of good, uh, a lot of good literature out there. I've read uh, Orthodoxy, The Everlasting Man, and The Man Who Was Thursday, but I'm, I'm deficient in the depths of Chesterton as uh, I don't know him as well as I know Lewis, thanks to you. Uh, well, neither do I. Uh, and I'm, it's very, very hard to get your arms around the whole of Chesterton's body of work. Well, it's almost well, thank as hard you for saying that because I... <laughs> almost as hard as getting your arms around his body. You know, he was a huge, huge, hugely fat man, and his corpus too. His uh, his body of work is amazingly large. So and there's a nice. Of course, he was a professional writer and journalist, and so he was yeah. pouring out words at the rate of knots. And um, yeah, to 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 be sure that you've read everything that Chesterton wrote is a very hard thing. Yeah, he's, he, he wrote poetry, he, wrote, he was a journalist, everything. So, well, thank you for clarifying that. I'm glad that, you know, if an Oxford scholar is having a problem with Chesterton, well, not a problem, but, you know, putting your arms around Chesterton, I feel better yes. now. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. In, in one way, though, that kind of leads us into what we're going to be talking about. Uh, there's a kind of spherical heaviness to the book we're going to be discussing today, The Man Who Was Thursday which is uh, part spy novel, part mystery, part suspense story, maybe a little bit of allegory and farce thrown in there. Mm. Um, this is one of my, I've read this book twice. It's the only Chesterton book I've read twice, probably because it's the smallest one that I have. And I, I can at least follow along with most of it. Um, now, I, I saw you, this triggered my imagination. I saw you, it was when I think I was still at HBU. You gave a presentation here in Texas at the University of Dallas. I think it was the first time that you presented some really intriguing information about Chesterton's book. Mm, mm. Um, so for our audience, and the sake of our audience, if you can give a brief synopsis of the book and then briefly talk about what you think you've seen in there. Yeah, it is a funny book, uh, The Man Who Was Thursday. It was published in 1908, I think, and it's never been out of print. It's it's proved wow. to be one of Chesterton's most popular works. And uh, it's a strange story about a man who, uh, in London, who, who's called Gabriel Syme. Mm. And he, uh, he joins what turns out to be a group of anarchists. Or at least that's what he thinks they are. But they all turn out to be policemen. Or is that the other way around? <laughs> no, I think he, he is, he is, uh, he thinks he's infiltrating a group of anarchists. At least that's his, his desire. And then when he then gets they, into the group, he finds out that they're all undercover as well. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a double layered thing where he, he thinks he's infiltrated this anarchist ring. And then he finds that uh, five other people have infiltrated the anarchist ring as well. <laughs> and your head is spinning about, you know, a, a third of the way into the book. You're like, what? <laughs> I know. Every sort of certainty that you think you've discovered turns out to be uncertain. Right. And because no there's that initial... ground on your feet. Exactly. There's that initial time where he sits in on the council of Sunday. Now, all of these guys in this group have days of the week names right so this guy is thursday that our main character gabriel is thursday he gets into the ring and his initial impression of the ring were all of these other men who had these hideous appearances he goes through one by one and he's describing what he seems to be unnatural hideous evils 
And then as the novel progresses, you it turns out they're all wearing, you know, masks and disguises and everything. And and so exactly what you say that 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 at at one level, the book talks about surface appearances versus actual reality and i think that's a theme throughout would you agree absolutely yes so th- this group of men is is called the council of either the central european council of anarchists or sometimes it's called the council of the seven days mm. because there are only seven members of this group and mm. they all are named after one of the days of the week yes so the man who is thursday is the protagonist the chap we're following but the other characters are sunday monday tuesday wednesday and friday Mm-hmm. Uh, and Saturday, uh, and they're all strange people in various ways. But the the leader is Sunday. He's mm-hmm. the president of the council, and he's a mysterious large man, unsleeping with a vast head. <laughs> and um, anyway, that's probably enough to be going on with as a as a yes. sort of uh, yes. taster of what the book is about. Yes. Yes. It's hard to summarize. It there's no you know if you go into footnotes or these the the secular sort of, you know, high school and collegiate uh, cliff notes or whatever. It, it is a confusing muddle. I mean, you can't really even when you get to the end and you're like who is Sunday? And mm. it, you're still sort of baffled by this. But uh you at the first the first impression of Sunday is that he is the evil ringmaster of all mm. of this. He is the chief anarchist that he seems to be a blasphemy of some kind that uh, Syme thinks he is almost diabolical in nature. Um, and I want to I quote on page 32 of the book that I have. This is an interesting thing where uh, Gabriel encounters another policeman who leads him to this group. And, and the policeman and Gabriel are kind of recognizing at this point, they're sort of on the same page uh, philosophically. And the policeman says, Uh, explaining why he became a policeman. He says, quote, I found that there was a special opening in the service for those whose fears for humanity were concerned rather with the aberrations of the scientific intellect than with the normal and excusable, though excessive, outbreaks of the human will. And it seems like that kind of goes along with with the rest of the theme, that that there's this idea that that science is somewhat anarchistic, uh, in, in the sense of, is is do you think that's what uh, um, Chesterton might be addressing on one level that there's the certain scientific philosophies of 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 the time were sort of anarchist in nature? Uh, well, possibly, uh, but I, I think the the anarchism, the anarchy, and literally, of course, anarchy means without a beginning, mm-hmm. um, is. Uh, is more specific to, well, at least in my reading of the book, it's, it's more specific to what I think the, the novel is about, which, which is about the, the conflict between a geocentric view of the cosmos and a heliocentric view. Um, that's what I think the whole book is really about at, at the fundamental level. Mm, okay. uh, and I, I come to that conclusion because of the subtitle of the book, which is A Nightmare. So people who haven't read the book and they're hearing us talking about it and we're, we're struggling to explain it. Um, but we've, we're struggling to explain it because it is somewhat nightmarish. It, ha- it has that sort of hallucinogenic and, and un- unfollowable uh, character of a dream and, and maybe a fever dream, a bad dream. Chesterton himself drew attention to the subtitle. Mm. Uh, and he he said that part of the problem with people's attitude of the book towards the book was that they hadn't 
paid attention to the to the title page where where the subtitle a nightmare uh is shown uh-huh. and so um so but, but why do i think that that has anything to do with geocentrism and heliocentrism it's it's because uh chesterton wrote an article called um in defense of planets mm. and in that article uh it's in his book the defendant uh he says this and if you'll forgive me dan i'll, I'll just quote this paragraph Sure. Because it's it's uh, really central to my whole approach to the book and, and hopefully very relevant to, you know, this podcast. Oh, absolutely. The, the Good Heavens podcast. Absolutely. Um, so in the defense, in a defense of planets, Chesterton says it's a very remarkable thing that none of us are really Copernicans in our actual outlook upon things. We are convinced intellectually that we inhabit a small provincial planet, but we do not feel in the least suburban. If a single poem or a single story were really transfused with the Copernican idea, the thing would be a nightmare. Can we think of a solemn scene of mountain stillness in which some prophet is standing in a trance, and then realize that the whole scene is whizzing round like a zoetrope at the rate of 19 miles a second. A strange fable might be written of a man who was blessed or cursed with the Copernican eye and saw all men on the earth like tin tacks clustering round a magnet. It would be singular to imagine how very different the speech of an aggressive egoist announcing the independence and divinity of man would sound if he were seen hanging on to the planet by his boot soles. Mm. It would be an interesting speculation to imagine whether the world will ever develop a Copernican poetry and a Copernican habit of fancy, whether we shall ever speak of early earth turn instead of <laughs> early sunrise mm. and speak indifferently of looking up at the daisies or looking down on the stars. Mm. So that's the, uh, the, the, the bit from A Defense of Planets, which I think connects very illuminatingly with uh, The Man Who Was Thursday because of the telltale giveaway word, a nightmare. It would be a nightmare to try to live consciously and deliberately, wholeheartedly, believing in the Copernican system, the heliocentric system. Mm -hmm. Why would it be nightmarish? Because it's just impractical. It's inhuman. We, we cannot conceive that the sun is not moving across the sky mm. of course the sun is not moving across it's just a trick of perspective it looks as if it's moving across the sky but actually our earth is turning mm -hmm. but we can't think like that at least not realistically no we, but... we may be able to intellectually be convinced of it but we can't poetically symbolically experientially live in a copernican world well, and I remember one striking aspect of Lewis's cosmology of the medieval, Lewis's understanding and explanation of the medieval cosmology was that, uh, that in the medieval world, there was a certain vertiginousness uh, mm. in looking up, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. and it seemed like this, this uh, heliocentrism takes away the vertigo. And now, uh, as Chesterton seems to be suggesting, imagine trying to walk down the streets of London or Oxford or something and and you're constantly conscious of the fact that you might be upside down. Mm. 
Exactly. <laughs> you how would how do you are beneath you? <laughs> right. How do you how do you're looking up at daisies as you say? Um, and I think uh, so. Here is the home. I read the book in 2011, and I just read it again this uh, uh, during uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, page 68. I'm about to. It's not quite the middle of the book, but uh, Syme is in a conversation where he says, "Quote Sunday." Uh, referring to the, the the principal antagonist of the group, Sunday is a fixed star, and that seems to suggest exactly what you're saying there. That uh, that heliocentrism now is forcing us to think in a, a particular kind of way. Sunday is a fixed star, and there's just nothing you can do about it. Um, and I like what Sunday or what uh, Syme says earlier in the book about poetry as well. You alluded to poetry, and it seems like Syme is saying that. Syme is saying that, 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 that everybody is a poet, really. And what kind of poetry is going to come out of, as you say, a heliocentric, um, a heliocentric universe? Because we, our language, our mannerisms, our day-to-day discourse throughout the cosmos is geocentric in its nature. And so, so like you say, so, so what kind of poetry? We go along with the poetry of modern science that says sunrises and sunsets, right? we still speak of the stars as though they turn about on a celestial sphere. Uh, and so despite our scientific knowledge, we seem to be fixated on the old medieval uh, way of understanding things, a very ancient way of understanding things. What other clues in the book itself uh, kind of enforced your, or reinforced your idea that, uh, that uh, uh, he's talking about heliocentrism and the, uh, the difference between the two worldviews? Uh, well, one t- tiny suggestion is is again in that defense of planets um that i just read mm-hmm. where he talks about speaking indifferently of looking up at the daisies or looking down on the stars mm. very interesting that he chooses daisies as his example of a flower mm. because of course a daisy is literally a day's eye that's Ooh. where the word comes from so you think of a little daisy with a, a golden heart and little white petals yes. arrayed, arrayed around that golden s- circle. Yes. And so a daisy reflects the sun. Um, oh. You know, it's a miniature version of the sun on the ground, as mm. it were. Um, so Chesterton there chooses his flower very carefully. But, that, but that's in the defense of planets. That's not in The Man Who Is Thursday. Mm-hmm. In The Man Who Is Thursday, uh, there are some very interesting little uh, indications that this is uh, what... Chesterton is on about. Um, for instance, towards the end of the book, the, the council members gather together. Uh, they meet in a garden, and there stood seven great chairs, the thrones of the seven days, mm. but the central chair was empty. And they're waiting for the central chair to be filled by Sunday. And it's very interesting that it is the central chair, because these six Days, these other six days of the week are the other six planets of the medieval cosmos. Mm. Um, they're waiting for the sun to come and sit in the middle of them. And mm. of course, according to the, the old pre-Copernican view of the cosmos, the sun was indeed the, cent- the central planet. Mm-hmm. Beneath the sun were Venus, Mercury, and the moon. And yes. above the sun were Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Mm-hmm. So Chesterton is, I think, clearly glancing at that old... Uh, that old model geocentric view of the cosmos mm-hmm. where <laughs> ironically the sun is at the center of the planets mm. but the earth is the center of the whole system mm. so there's a clash of, of of centers it's not 
obvious who who really has the upper hand uh, as mm -hmm. as regards centrality, Got and it. that's that's part of the you know the nightmarish quality of the book that you don't know whether you are on your head or your heels. Ah, so uh, he is uh, deliberately dizzying his readers. Yes, exactly. And and these other six members of the council are called in one place the the satellites mm. of of Sunday. Um, more than once they're called the wanderers and of course yeah that's planetai planetai in greek yes. means wanderers the planets are literally the wandering stars and i will say that chesterton does a masterful job because the second time i read it just a couple of weeks ago uh i am definitely in my mind going back and forth with because i couldn't remember exactly how it unfolded trying to go back and forth with what is he doing where am mm. i what's mm. going on he puts you in the seat with the gentleman in the car and they go to the town where there's a riot and, 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 and you're just, whose side is anybody on, right? It, it's, yes. it's a continual changing of sides. Well, exactly. And the, isn't there a chapter, one of the chapter titles, isn't it called the, the criminals chase the police? Yes, um, exactly. It's not clear who are the criminals and who are the policemen. That's right. You uh, are, it's uh, chapter 11. Uh, and then there are some other examples too. Uh, we're told about an old gentleman in gray clothes who's run away with an elephant. <laughs> or perhaps an elephant has eloped with an elderly gent. And then we're, talk we're told about this bird, the hornbill. Is the yes. hornbill a huge yellow beak with a small bird tied on behind it? Or vice versa? Uh. So you're never sure which way up things are going. Or wh which is the front and which is the back, which is up and which is down. Yes, you're exactly right. Uh, I love, there's a small, this is a little tidbit of a quote I have from uh, in that chapter, uh, called the criminals that chase the police. Um, Gabriel, I think it's Gabriel. Uh, well, it's the narrator. This is Chesterton speaking. It's not a character's quote. He had found the thing which the modern people call impressionism, capital I, uh, referring to art, uh, which is another name for that final skepticism, which can find no floor to the universe. I think that nicely fits what you're talking about. You're like, mm. what is up and down in a mm. universe, in a heliocentric uh, universe, as, as Copernican would say? What kind of up and down do we have in a Copernican poem? Yeah. Um, and uh, it, early on in the chapter, I noticed that when Simon is, is getting into this, uh, that Chesterton paints the picture, in uh, page 33 out of this quote, uh, that he that he says that I am fully aware of the value of the ordinary man in matters of ordinary valor or virtue, but it would be obviously undesirable to employ the common policeman in an investigation, which is also a heresy hunt. So in other words, it seems like Chesterton is saying that at, at the heart of all of this is, is a kind of communication that does at some level affect everybody. We're not just talking about an esoteric scientific philosophy. We're talking about what are the philosophers saying to us? What are the poets of our day saying to us? How do we negotiate this world and who is, who is telling us? And as you read this, as a common person, you, you are thrown into a frenzy of, of, of a kind of nightmare uh, about how does this affect all of us? You know, mm -hmm. is, this, is this just science or are these just uh, an exercise for, for academic intellectuals? Or how does this trickle down into the masses? And I think that's, uh, that's played out pretty well in the chapter where the police are chasing the criminals. It really does seem to be, uh, uh, as he says in uh, the first part of that chapter, the wood of witchery in which men's faces turned black and white by turns. 
So you have all this turning in which Ooh. their figures first swelled into sunlight and then faded into formless night, the mere chaos of chiaroscuro after the clear daylight outside. And you can picture the earth turning, or is it the sun turning? We're going from black to white, white to black, enemy to police, police to the enemy. And you're back and forth without any place to, uh, to lay your feet. Yep. The very first sentence of the book is interesting. Uh, the story opens with this sentence. The suburb of Saffron Park lay on the sunset side of London as red and ragged as a cloud of sunset. Yeah, what's going on there? And it's interesting that in that very sentence, we have the word sunset appear twice. Mm. Uh, and we also have the word suburb because, uh, I mean, that again puts us in mind of, puts me in mind of the defense of planets because that there Chesterton says, we do not feel in the least suburban mm. uh, living on planet earth. We're told that we're no longer the center of, 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 uh, of the universe, that the sun is at the center and we're at the edge, but we don't feel suburban. Well, here in The Man Who Is Thursday, uh, Gabriel Syme is literally suburban. He, he lives in a suburb of London and it's a suburb on the sunset side. Mm. Um, it's where the sun is setting. And that's interesting because right at the end of the book, the sun has indeed set, night has passed, and now sun is rising. And so the final vision of the, of the story is of a beautiful girl called Rosamond, yes. who, is, who is found with gold-red hair, cutting lilacs before breakfast with the great unconscious gravity of a girl. Mm. And those are the final words of the book. Mm -hmm. So the book starts with sunset and ends with sunrise, with dawn, um, as this girl cuts the flowers before breakfast. Mm. And she has, interestingly, a great unconscious gravity. And that's, again, a, a little, a little tip jab there. Not nudge and a wink that Chesterton is talking about geocentrism and heliocentrism. How we learn. Unconscious gravity is the situation that we should all aspire towards we shouldn't imagine that we are uh, looking down at the stars and up at the, the daisies no that's just bizarre that's perverse that's nightmarish mm. yes uh, we should rather live our lives with a due humility that i think is is the point Cheston had a great admiration for the innocence and humility of childhood the, and the tremendous gravity of a child, the, the weightiness, the sincerity of, of, of a child that, that just naturally roots him or her in place, mm. but without any conscious deliberation. Oh, oh I, must, I must remember that the, the forces of gravity are holding me down to the earth. No, no, <laughs> right. no. You don't need to force yourself to think like that mm -hmm. because it is our nature to think like that. It is how we have been created. Yes. Sun, according to Psalm 19, does indeed cross the sky. Um, and we can't make the sun stand still. Mm. Unlike Joshua in the book of Joshua, you remember, who does miraculously for a bit make the sun stand still. Right. To, to, for all intents and purposes, the sun is crossing our sky, and we shouldn't be ashamed to admit that fact. Yes. Because that, though, although it is apparently not a reality, it, it is an appearance, not a reality, that the sun moves across the sky. Nonetheless, it is a reality as far as we are concerned. Mm -hmm. And so that false appearance is itself a fact which has to be reckoned with. Well, and I think the very fact that we retain 
the celestial sphere and the, the terminology, the language, the poetry of sunrise and sunset. Um, what kind of poetic diction is going to describe an earth turn? Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's um, never going to catch on, is it? It's not. It's <laughs> not going to work. It's going to be very dead, wooden, and literal. And I mm. think it is, uh, you know, in some sense, and I may be biased to this because I see Lewis and everything now, but uh, I was thinking of how much... Uh, how much of Lewis's thoughts about the empty universe uh, came out of this a little bit that uh, when he's talking about the emptying of the, the genial universe being emptied of its spirits and, and everything else uh, that Lewis might've had in mind, of course, that it empties us of a poetry, it emptied us, empties us of a language uh, that's very reductionistic. Um, when you said something about childhood, I was in the last chapter here, the accuser page 151 in the book I'm reading um, just a small quote here. For a long time, it seemed for hours that the huge masquerade of mankind swayed and stamped in front of them to marching and exultant music. Every couple dancing seemed a separate romance. It might be a fairy dancing with a pillar box or a peasant girl dancing with the moon. But in each case, it was somehow as absurd as Alice in Wonderland, yet as grave and as kind as a love story. And that is in the, the, the end there where all the, the days gather before Sunday. And I think that is, uh, that is actually what, you know, child, uh, Chesterton's love of childhood, his, his, his humble imagination, um, you know, what you say, the love story there about the girl with the red hair, the gravitas, the gravity of, of being human and, and acting out uh, the language that God has given us in creation. concludes part one of my two-part discussion with Dr. Michael Ward on the creative imagination of G.K. Chesterton and his timeless mystery adventure love story cosmic fantasy about the man who was Thursday. We hope to see you again soon for part two. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated of Arlington, Texas. Be sure to visit watchman.org today for helpful resources on Christian apologetics understanding other non-Christian religions, worldviews, and cults. Also be sure to check out our new Apologetics Profile podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Podomatic. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, you can help support both Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile on Patreon.com. Mm-hmm.